0: Hello, and welcome to Boston Private Perspectives. I'm Shannon Sakosha, Chief Investment Officer at Boston Private, and I want to thank you for joining us today. With the 4th of July now behind us, we look forward to the dog days of summer, which, if the last few years are any indication, are likely to be plenty interesting. This week, I'd like to revisit a topic we touched on briefly several weeks ago, but come at it from a slightly different angle. One of the concerns that's been cropping up is the concentration of names like Microsoft, Apple, and Amazon in the S&P 500. We discussed this at length in our podcast on May 27th, but I want to take a step back today and talk about what has created this concentration and if it can possibly persist. It's hard to imagine that if you go back to the year prior to the financial crisis, all of the market pundits you would be listening to would be touting the theories of Fama and French, two noted University of Chicago economists who derived a capital market pricing theory in the early 1990s, which pointed to the outperformance of the value factor and the size factor in equities over time. The combination of the value premium, which is defined as high book-to-market value stocks outperforming low book-to-market value stocks, along with the size premium, which is defined as small-cap stocks outperforming large-cap stocks, along with beta, proved to explain the majority of the returns of a portfolio over time. So in the early 2000s, your portfolio would have included a lot of energy and financials names along with industrials, telecommunications, and some technology, likely hardware, if you were following these ideals. Fast forward to today and growth stocks have massively outperformed since the financial crisis. Large cap growth names in particular have performed well, increasing their percentage in the S&P 500 at the expense of financial and energy stocks. So what happened? The first factor to take a look at is the shift in the U.S. economy. If you go back to the 1950s and look at GDP, 40% of total GDP was made up of sales of goods, whereas only 25% was attributable to services. Fast forward to today, and almost 50% of GDP, at least in 2019, was attributable to services whereas only 20% of GDP was attributable to goods. And this has been reflected in the U.S. equity market as well, as companies that provide services have continued to grow in value, expanding their footprint, whereas manufacturing, as we've talked about previously when we talk about measures such as the purchasing managers' indices, has continued to wane in importance. The next factor to consider is the length of an economic cycle. If we go back to the 19th century and then into the 20th century, economic cycles, or expansionary cycles in particular, extended. As in the 19th century, we had an average of 25 months in an expansion. In the 20th century, this was 44 months. And today, expansions are over 100 months in length. One could point to the significant amount of both monetary and fiscal stimulus that is applied to the economy, both here in the United States as well as globally, whenever a recession hits. This infusion of liquidity allows both the credit markets and the equity markets to better navigate these recessionary periods. And as such, the expansions have tended to be longer and the recession shorter during this modern era. The third thing to consider when thinking about the difference between growth and value is what value actually means in this new world. As I mentioned previously, price to book value or book value to market value was an incredibly important part of the Fama and French analysis. The challenge is now that many companies that make up the investable universe within the S&P 500 as well as in other indices do not rely on fixed assets to be able to run their businesses. So the book value that they have is no longer able to be calculated in the same manner that it was previously, and therefore the value of their company is understated when utilizing this measure. To put this in perspective, intangible assets as a percent of property, plant, and equipment is almost 60 percent up dramatically from 25% in only the early 2000s. The other thing to consider is that intangible assets as a percent of book value tends to be a pretty volatile measure and is often greater than that book value, making price-to-book a less useful metric to evaluate stocks in this new world. Inflation, too, plays a role in the growth versus value dynamic. Supply and demand, particularly in the commodity sector, has been a driver of company value or value destruction over the course of the last 30 years. Commodities such as copper and oil coming into the financial crisis were hitting record highs on the back of significant infrastructure build out of China, as well as an economy globally that was growing at a feverish pace. A return to an inflationary environment has been predicted every year since 2010, given the massive amount of liquidity that I discussed earlier that has been infused by global central banks. And yet, there is little to no inflation in commodities or in the basket of goods that global central banks use to determine whether we have inflation at the consumer level. I've outlined several factors that describe how things have changed, particularly over the last 10 years. But decades of economic research can't be wrong, can they? The idea that eventually investors will wake up and consider the valuations on these lofty growth names unreasonable is the major argument for a rotation to value. An easy extrapolation of this is that mean reversion will take over and that a rotation to value from growth will occur, as the investors wake up from their central bank liquidity-induced stupor. What is more likely to affect this type of change is not a binary move from growth to value, but rather a broadening out of equity market leadership. Energy, industrials, and material stocks are likely to gain their mythical momentum higher only if we experience an inflection point higher in global growth as well which would then drive a real recovery of global manufacturing and create inflationary pressure on prices. Inflation and growth, too, are what financials need, as both will help to steepen the yield curve and create pressure on the Federal Reserve and other central banks to raise interest rates again. In the interim, the outperformance of growth could most certainly persist. Low interest rate, Low economic growth environments favor companies who are innovating and who have strong balance sheets with lots of cash for potential acquisitions and share buybacks, which many growth companies have after a decade of access to cheap credit. And buying what's performed well has seemed to work through this time of uncertainty. But should global growth accelerate next year, then the time could come for value. FAMA and French used 15 years as their time horizon, so maybe we should too. Thanks again for listening to this week's podcast. I want to encourage all of you to reach out to the team here at Boston Private with any questions or concerns you may have. Providing guidance and support as a trusted advisor is our mission. If you have any questions or thoughts on my points today, you can find me on Twitter at Shannon Sakosha. You can also read our latest perspectives on the markets, the economy, taxes, estate planning and a variety of other topics by visiting BostonPrivate.com. And if you want all of this information delivered right to your inbox, I encourage you to sign up for our newsletters on our website as well. Be sure to subscribe to the Boston Private Perspectives on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud or Spotify, wherever you prefer to listen. And I look forward to coming to you once again from my home studio next week.
1: The following does not represent a complete analysis of every material fact with respect to the topics covered herein. All investments carry a risk of loss. Neither BPW nor its investment professionals or representatives provide tax, accounting, or legal advice. Listeners should review any planned financial transactions or arrangements that may have tax, accounting, or legal implications with their advisors. For additional information about us, please refer to our Form ADV Disclosure Brochure, which may be obtained by contacting us at 800-422-6172 or info at bostonprivate.com. Private banking and trust services are offered through Boston Private Bank and Trust Company, a Massachusetts chartered trust company. Wealth management services are offered through Boston Private Wealth LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor and wholly-owned subsidiary of Boston Private Bank and Trust Company. Boston Private Bank is an FDIC member and equal housing lender. Investments are not FDIC-insured, not bank-guaranteed, and may lose value.